Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association based at Wits University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast engages with issues about university life relevant to students and staff looking in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular area. My name is Nosipum Gomezulu. And I'm Kolega Shangi. And, and we're your hosts. hosts. I am Nosi Pocha Debe, a Vitz Law graduate, and I think a public intellectual can be defined as someone who primarily uses their intelligence either as a professional or in their individual capacity. Their views are generally, I think, around issues of governance, socioeconomic and political issues. Furthermore, the intellectual goes beyond focusing on newsworthy items and goes into the realm of theory, from thinking and formulating theory to articulating as to how that theory would potentially work in reality. Atambile Masola is a PhD candidate working on research on Noni Jabavu. She's a lecturer at the University of Pretoria's Faculty of Education. She's also a Mandela Road scholar and holds a master's in education. She's had five years of experience working as a teacher and recently presented a paper on Nonsezi Mgueto and Charlotte Matlege at the African Literature Colloquium hosted at the School of African Languages at the university currently known as Rhodes. Welcome to this week's episode of The Academic Citizen. As we promised you, we are revisiting our conversation with Atambile Masola. We started off uh, last season talking about public intellectuals. If you want to listen back to that show, last season it was episode 44 and it was a really good chat. So we wanted to just continue this conversation. Welcome back. Thank you, Nosipo. Joined in studio by our co-host, Kolega Shane. How are you doing, Kolega? Good. So, last time we had this conversation, right, about um, public intellectuals. And afterwards, you sent me this amazing piece by David Sessions, published in The New Republic, uh, talking about the rise of the thought leader. And I thought maybe that's a good place for us to start. Mm. The commodification. Of think piecing. Mm, mm, mm. So I really like this article about what's happening in South Africa right now, just in terms of who are the people who are visible, and why are they visible when when it comes to ideas. And the obvious one I kind of always go to is ENCA. Who are the commentators on ENCA? And there's this thing of like it's the latest face, it's the latest. And what what was the thinking behind that getting that particular person? So we see they come for various seasons, and I don't know what the decisions are sometimes. But I do know sometimes people ask their friends. So what are the decisions that go behind? Who's got the network? It's when it just becomes too obvious, mm. or what What are you saying once you are in that space? Is there room for your own voice and for you to disagree? Or is it just one kind of seamless conversation and we can't quite tell apart when noisy speaking, when Kolega speaking, when Atta speaking and all of that. So I, I found it interesting and what the article is basically saying is kind of getting us to think about what happens when capitalism captures, I mean that word Are again. we not we the are, most captured actually, countries? <laughs> are, everything is captured, in fact. Everything is captured. We are captured. all captured. But what happens when capitalism or capital gets involved in this 
kind of what the article calls this marketplace of ideas where it used to be a lot more, not necessarily democratic, but there used to be more space for dissenting, dissenting voices. But now, I think once money gets involved, it's about who gets to publish. It's about who publishes where and which publishing spots are the spots to publish. Like in academia, we have this thing of the right journals. But this idea that there are certain journals that we must publish in and there are certain journals that we mustn't publish in. Yeah, and so, how, so having conversations on the academic citizen or writing in the newspaper that doesn't is not count. knowledge production. That's, knowledge produ- that's not knowledge production because it's not going to give them 20k or however it is that, mm-hmm. however much it is that they make from the journal articles that we write, which then go back into their coffers and then when you are given a little bit at the end of the day, just to put into your research. Okay, fund. capital has always been a part, right, of from the dawn of newspapers. We know that, like, there were particular voices that were privileged, and now that we've got not just traditional media sources, but we've also got social media, it appears like we've got a, a choir of voices that are now able to, actually a plethora of voices, but actually what we're often hearing is a choir. Mm we are hearing the same chorus over Mm. and over again. And is there room for dissent if capital is involved? This is the thing, right? Because, Mm. and so much, so if when capital is involved, but also when we are all, there's the chorus. Is there room for you to be outside of that Mm. chorus and be able to voice that? And what does that mean for our thinking space, our own ability to think creatively? So we must all be finger snapping at the same thing at the same time. Mm. And I'm nervous. But this is the thing about, like, I'm so glad that you raised the same time thing, right? Because we don't arrive at the conclusions we arrive at all at the same time. Sometimes I might spend a lot of time researching a particular area. So for my own work, I'm very much invested in questions of nationhood. But I might not necessarily have enough knowledge about economics to be able to actually intervene in conversations about state capture knowledgeably. And so there's kind of this strange thing of, like, the academic thought leader the journalist and then the researcher mm. like what is the relationship mm. between all these things because you could be all in one mm. but but it's this thing of who's the expert right because in all of that we also you must be an expert of state capture you must be an expert of all these things and somehow when you're an expert you must also be able to articulate in a way that it makes sense to everybody and for me the the, the space of economics is one of the most interesting ones because the people who are experts are often white males now what does that message mean whatever it is that they say to black women who often face the brunt of some of the decisions that are made in economics about our day-to-day lived experiences. So I don't know, I mean, I'm not answering your question, but it's, it's something that I'm seeing. I think there's a nervousness, because now you will see something on Twitter, and then you, if you know the person, I often then go into their DM, like, hey, I saw what you just did, what are you doing? And there's always the subtweeting as well, so you don't get caught out, and you don't mm-hmm. look like you are, they're getting caught out, because people will come for you. And then we also kind of enjoy when people are being come for, so the kind of onslaught of, you know, we're now hanging up on Kolega because she said the wrong things. But here's the thing, right? So dragging is dragging, a huge that's part the of... You know uh, the language. I'm here. I'm here on the socials. The <laughs> I'm here on the socials. But here's the thing, right? So dragging that happens, and predominantly when we're talking about dragging, we're talking about it happening in black Twitter space where a lot of people are in constant conversation with each other. Mm. They might know each other purely online, but they are having an ongoing debate or conversation about key issues and such. And so when someone gets dragged, you're not always aware of like the long history okay. and background or whatever. Mm. But one of my big discomforts, because I'm also trying to be mindful of the kind of archetypes that 
black women who are going to be online are dragging each other, they're pulling each other down. But we also know in like conferences and academic spaces where we drag politely. Where, where we there's say, a polite drag. Think a little, I want to push you to think a little harder. That happened to me a few weeks ago. Oh yeah? I want to push you to just think a little harder. I, I say it happened to me and we witnessed it and we were like, really? Really, really? That's like a polite sort of academic speak. Of dragging the person like this person has just delivered a whole keynote and you're gonna say i want to push you a little <laughs> i want to push your thinking but then how consider do we consider rethinking consider, consider rethinking <laughs> <laughs> a, pol- a polite invitation but then we, how do we then square mm. that desire mm. to have a less dragging space mm. and also dissent like how do we mm. dissent mm. then especially where those academic conventions i guess of like particular types of argumentation and presentation of ideas mm. is peer-reviewed, da-da-da-da-da, there's a lot of gatekeeping. I think this is one of the difficult questions of our day, is how do we fight better? How do we disagree better? And I don't know how to do it, Shim. And I don't think we, we learn. My usual thing is to like just avoid it. So I like calm the situation down immediately and I put on my best English. Just be like, I don't want to have to deal with this, so I'm just going to quickly like diffuse the situation. But the, that's just my way of doing it. But in terms of disagreeing, because we have to disagree and we must disagree. And I don't know, we don't always think of it as a good thing. I don't know, I'm still working through that one, Noisy. And maybe it's about the intention as well be- mm-hmm. behind the disagreeing. So what are we disagreeing for? Mm. Is it about people? Yeah, or is it really about, you know, kind of helping the other person see a thought that maybe they never, you know, consider. Mm-hmm. So it's always, always about intention. You know when it's being malicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You always know. You mm-hmm. can feel it. Like mm-hmm. I always say, the body remembers. So you know when there's like spice behind something. Yeah. But when some someone is being constructive for the for the purpose of us growing intellectually, then you can feel that no, I'm being carried here mm-hmm. intellectually. This is the thing, right? I was actually talking about this recently with friends, that there is a whole tradition, though, of scholars, be it Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre, who were lovers, growing in that conflict where we see we've got books of their letters where they back and forth on issues. So we know that there are certain people who've done it and done it well um, and were peers. So why is it that there are certain people, when they do it, it's called challenging each other. When other people do it, it's called dragging, perhaps, or we don't see sort of the the same sort of spirit of dissent in a way that is opening up and stretching each other and growing. And maybe it happens in more private spaces. We're not going to see it on Twitter, unfortunately, or whatever these other spaces are. But it, it's it's something that troubles me. So like, yeah, how do we do it? I want us to go back to the social media conversation in a sec. But before we do that, just to carry on with our thread on on how to disagree and the kind of spirit of disagreement. Don't haters give us life also? Like, don't people who drag us, who embarrass us, also contribute to learning and shaping our ideas and how we present our ideas? Like, so I'm saying, does it have to be kindly and compassionate can it be i actually don't like your vibe and i actually don't even like the way you present your paper and i'm gonna come for you it's what do because they were not all the it's same not. it's so, not constructive what is the purpose we're building ideas and also we might genuinely not enjoy each other we might genuinely but it's not about us as individuals it's about the ideas i think i think that's always important to take it away from and it's very, I'm, I'm scared to sound problematic here because I do believe that the personal is political. So mm-hmm. I don't want to say that take it out of the personal, but I think 
when you start to attack someone's character mm. that's a very very mm, different very thing different. so it's all about like intention what are we there for mm. we are there as thought leaders right mm. or so called thought leaders mm. and we are here to grow each other intellectually mm. so also but also we adulting right mm. <laughs> and building our careers and, and, and building, building our, our careers brands. exactly mm. so, so this is the thing right mm. so building your brand versus building your career like if i don't like your brand does it mean the same thing as i disagree with you? when we speak of thought leader who put you there mm-hmm. in this high position of leading and am i are you leading because you're leading brand are you marketable mm-hmm. or and i and i'm not sure either mm-hmm. i'm i'm not always sure which is which mm-hmm. but i think when a colleague are you saying something very important because if we come from the perspective for me like maybe the feminist thing about disagreeing surely there's a way that feminists disagree in a way that is different to patriarchs in a way mm. that is probably different to other people who don't as- or who don't ascribe to being feminist so i i, I kind of try to think like is there a guidance so if you and i are having a disagreement is there a way that it's going to look different when you and josh maybe are having a disagreement <laughs> for whatever reason or you and becky are having a disagreement assuming mm-hmm. Becky is a, a certain kind of prototype that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. But also if I think of the way that my mother or my mothers disagreed with each other, like in what context, in the way that what is it that's making us Mongola today? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's sometimes the, the, the essence of what you're saying. What's the purpose? So, and sometimes that's all it is. You don't say, you know, making eye contact, but I think we come, I come from that tradition at least, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing, and then I, in fact, it started when I was at school, the tradition of debating, that if you take on a particular posture, because the whole thing is you have to be right at the end of the day in order to win the debate, and so our whole, and I think academia is almost an extension of that, and which is why I think a lot of people who end, up, in, end up as academics, who end up as being the thought leaders, because it's this whole tradition that they've been prepared for in this very formalized way of argumentation, arguing ad hominem, and all these Latin terms that we use, straw manning, or whatever those things are. Because there's a particular tradition of what it means, and they're not all bad. Don't I, come for debates. I'm not coming for debates. <laughs> I think there's a particular tradition. So for me, there's, those are two very different traditions. What I see at home with my mothers and my mm. sisters, and what I then started encountering in school, particularly through debating, and then what started happening even in class, which were all oh, the debaters are taking over the conversation mm. because there's a particular way in which you posture in which you say your point and which it will be heard if you say it like a St. Andrew's boy for example Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it's being heard so that's for me even just before we even get to the how of it what's the lens and what's the framework Mm -hmm. with which we want to do this disagreement is it because we are I want to prove that I'm right and you're wrong or are we building because we must be better people to do this And, and this beautifully brings us to i mean what you've raised about social media right so what are the mediums through which we are doing these fights because right now at least from the start of the conversation my assumption has been a thought leader is someone i'm reading in the newspaper social media etc but surely there are thought leaders in other spaces and who lead in developing ideas and thoughts i mean Gramsci's public intellectual is precisely that individual who is so steeped in their local understandings of the good, who is able to engage ideas and mobilize and bring together those particular ideas mm-hmm. that represent, you know, local understandings of the good. That 
won't necessarily find a home in higher education, mm-hmm. but have a lot more legitimacy and currency at Brie Taxi Rank or mm. Ulundi mm-hmm. or, you know, Houghton. <laughs> you know? So are, are those still thought leaders? Like, who's this character we have in mind? Because I think I've been working with an assumption here that might, I don't, do we share that assumption? Mm-hmm. For me, that's new. It's, uh, so I think up until a few years ago, mm. a thought leader was a white man or a, a man writing in some paper being an expert. But now that I've started rethinking, reading lots more bell hooks and being able to bring in, seeing my world that's always outside of the academia, my education, and saying, actually, there was intellectual work happening mm. right there. Like, for example, I mean, I'm thinking of two right now just because I've just watched the video. Someone like the Namklop. Mm. is an intellectual and a thought leader and a public intellectual but because she does it in a particular style so stumbled upon that inaugural sort of keynote that she did at Abandu book festival oh yeah yeah she's one time she's singing then she's doing a poem then she's talking and the whole the audience the whole thing is a performance in a way because the audience then they're singing then they're singing and she's talking about you know, and that's a keynote, and she's talking and bringing all those experiences together. Creative, but also just steeped in the way in which you say a word and everyone's like, oh, we all know it. And that kind of performance that we don't, I don't think we've given her that kind of recognition, even though we've given her this space and we see Wilson and Klopp as a creative, as a person who's, who's contributed. But for me, it's only become more recent that I've seen her, or even more recently in, in church. You know, I like church spaces. I grew up in the church and what, black women are doing in the church for themselves and using the, the sometimes very problematic but sometimes life-giving ways in which they create space for themselves. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the rhetoric that I grew up with. So there is a space and how, I mean, and maybe I'm basing a lot on rhetoric, how people also speak and mm-hmm. you're speaking being a performance. Mm-hmm. That's a whole kind of thing about how do we present these ideas in various ways that, you know, writing is so far removed. It's like almost like the last thing that if we never even encounter Umamu's ban ban or Litsuiko, we've never seen her writing, but we know when she speaks, this is Umamu. Yeah, that's very, very powerful. And it speaks back to this idea of knowledge production and what actually qualifies as, as valid knowledge. And as you're speaking about Umamu Kunamklope, I always say, you know, when I still used to be online, I used to say, you know, according to the great philosopher Brenda Fazi, mm-hmm. and then I'd quote her, you know, because really the stuff that she spoke about in, in, in her songs, you know, refusing to leave a party because Lendo dies like, and she's like, I you know, and kind of reclaiming her time, right? <laughs> so I think that is very interesting as demystifying the idea of the so-called public intellectual Mm. even what does that look like the thought leader what does that actually look like and also bringing in the indigenous so when we talk about ego as thought leadership what Mm. does that actually mean you know thinking about it within the context of you know our own continent what does that look like we know many many uncles and and aunts oh my cool you know that have been thought leading forever and ever and ever, but they are nowhere near mm. a computer. So what does mm. that what mm. does that actually mean? Mm. And it also speaks to audience who we perceive we're speaking for. And mm. we, we spoke um, last season about the kind of imagined audience of 
kind of thought leaders think pieces mm. thought leaders works and they think pieces mm. and it's really difficult because on the one hand we are inheriting a very particular understanding of what a thought leader is right so i'm here quoting gramsci last uh, time you were on the show you're talking to us about mafeje's work as well but is it a a tight fit is it a forced fit when we call people who are storytellers who are creatives thought leaders or should we be using another name oh am i am i being am i being stuck on on kind of like categories as an anthropologist. I think there's something to be said about the language of thought leadership. Oh yeah? You okay. know, and, and, and the idea of accessibility that, I mean, it is packaged in a particular way, you know. You have to sound, it's what you're talking about, the debating and, and, and having a particular posture. So you do take on some kind of character as you you practice this, this thought leadership and in the end, it all sounds like one choir. I mean, mm. I feel like once I've read one, I've read all of them. Sure. Really. Or once mean, I've heard one, right? Mm. Right. How many yeah. times have now people, in order to sound smart, oh, you're not smart if you haven't said, right? And you take on <laughs> a particular talk. When did that happen? Oh, it's consensus building. Right. For the time where we didn't say right, where we mm. said maybe, and iti. Exactly. Or nitini. Or there were other fillers that we were putting in our sentences to get that consensus, whatever you just called it now. <laughs> <laughs> I literally made it up right now. <laughs> but for me, like, so you've seen one, you've yeah. seen them all, you've yeah. heard one, you've heard them all. Oh, and it messes same with the WhatsApp group. Yes, same WhatsApp group. Exactly. It's, it's the language. It's the language also that's not... Atta, so you are the resident Noah of the social media. You must go and find out where this comes from. Guys, and I'm going to say seven years again now because I'm going to seven I just will shake. So we, we are in a precarious time in our country because it is August when you must switch on as a woman. Switch on. Switch on your feminism. Switch on. Being aware of gender-based violence, switch on, you know, wage equality. So I put, I, I put it to you, sisters, Women's Month. What, what burdens will you be carrying this month for Women's Month? What does it even mean to you to, no, to, no. to kind of think publicly during this month? Are you whispering it's a trap? Because I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. <laughs> this question is a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. Tell me why this question is a trap. Oh, it's so difficult. It's like what you are saying, pumping up for the month. <laughs> and then towards the end, what do you do? What happens? Because these are lived experiences all day, every day. Mm-hmm. I don't think that in September, a patriarchy takes a break. Mm-hmm. And now it focuses on spring and denies to us. It just continues being violent. So I don't know about pumping myself up for August because I have to pump myself up every day as mm. Actually, and occupy fact. spaces. So August, it's just... That's what happened in August. And I don't know what the English word is for that. I think it's still... Yeah, it's okay. It's cutting Because... Yes, colleague, I'm not even going to mix your words because I'm so tired, hey? And then we but must... how wild is that? So the month that is set on the calendar to celebrate, to think about, you know, woman. sixteen days. I was like, wait a minute, why sixteen days? Sixteen days for what? For who? And then what? 
and then and, and i think over the years we've actually pumped up women's day even more so we kind of pump up in women's day and we come down in september october november december again and then we come down because then it's schools and reports come out and blah 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 but mumdu joe too i i don't have an articulate way or intellectual way of putting that mumdu joe that is intellectual mumdu mumdu can we is it is it possible do you feel i mean both of you are saying you're tired do you there's a good bamboozle so i mean part of it being reclaiming it the other day someone asked me you know what does it mean and i was there having to say um you know things and i just said i have a love hate relationship with because on the one hand i don't want to forget 1956 yeah, yeah. but i've also just begun to realize because it's always as if that's when we started whereas in 1800s mm. early 1900s mm. women were out there doing the marches and protests so why aren't we remembering as early as that in mm. 1956 mm. so i realized that mdujo already led us in zayo So yeah that was the that was a sore point for me I was like 1956 yeah. shouldn't be the moment it was great it was important but it's it has actually erased a whole lot of other things as well and that was the turning point for me I was just like I don't know so is it is it any good to to work with to use Stuart Hall's phrasing is it still good to think with women's month is it a useful time for us to be you know centering women's stories in you know our think pieces in, in the work that we do or do you think we should be doing this work in other times of the year and just leave the official government programs for But women's money But the thing mind? is we are doing this at every time of mm. the year we are doing it it's other people who don't know that we are doing this work every day mm. when you wake up in the morning this is my life every day <laughs> you look so tired <laughs> you look so tired <laughs> you say that <laughs> And I, I like so e go government umhlaba ga ibone so ubona ba edinga le le agenda ka August. Tina say as ba every day we we can see again the truth. Nje it's it's womanhood every day. Black womanhood every day. I'm in this body every day. I do the work every day. So yeah, like like what I'm saying, you know, we're not completely dismissing, you know, what it acknowledges. Of course that happened, but also this kind of linear understanding of history as well and saying pre post banbani and these eras and epochs and all those things i find it so problematic because then it cuts out like so many women that have been doing the work but also cuts this is i'm so glad you said cuts out so many women this is a conversation you and i have been having an ongoing conversation yeah. about i mean and we're not going to solve it in today's episode but like this understanding of womanness kind of being reduced in this month to a very particular body, a very particular way of presenting gender, I guess. Because the woman we want to talk about in August is a wife, is a mother, is a executive, is a director, is a so it must it's again this whole performance of this of thing that we have been fighting all along. So it's not a you, it's not a me, it's not a colleague mm-hmm. who is the the image of Um, oh but soon man. oh but soon we too will grace the covers of insert of insert think peace about women's day and we shall re and, and it feels like there's there's like limited air time it's such a strange thing about 
the intellectual space I'm finding in, in our context in South Africa, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if across the continent and even in the global south in general, in the world, I mean, we've got our lean in. They're very particular voices and limited spaces for those voices. So we'll get one to represent, you know, the super radical. We'll get one to represent, you know, the more conservative or mm. traditional. We'll get one to represent a wacky take on woman. And that's a space, you know. It's, it's such a strange phenomenon as if, if too many it's women packaged. are speaking up. It's like, oh, no, no, we already have a woman with dreadlocks, so I'm sorry. <laughs> So you won't be able to to make the spotlight. We've got one. We've got one dreadlock woman. We've got one with tattoos. We need we need a tattoo. Oh, we've already got one. Oh goodness. We've got uh, one with short hair. Mm, always. Always. Right. Mm. And then where does that? And then I think the fruitful conversation that's been brought on by the global movement for recognizing not only trans lives but non-binary lives and just saying we cannot squeeze any further into this box and recognizing again that as cis women we have a limited yeah. space also in our own knowledge and understanding and language to be able to make room right mm-hmm. so maybe that could be another chat yeah. for another show another another one we pick up um, so fem- feminism in public for you is not necessarily Women's Month, but how, how do we feminist in public in the sense that we have these ideas and concepts, as Kollega was saying in last week's show, we were talking about you know, how we practice the things that we imbibe within higher education spaces. What is, what is being a feminist in public? And Kollega, you are grappling with this question of like, do I still use <laughs> these, these forms of identification? Because for me, one of the things that I, I'm often coming against is not necessarily a stone-faced, cold, and feeling like, damn you feminist, but a lot of people saying this language doesn't speak to the things I want to say. And mm-hmm. I've had this argument with my sister, I've had this argument with female cousins, with women who are outside of higher education who say to me, Yes, if you explain it to me, but that means I'm hearing you monologue about this thing you're calling feminism, and I think about it in different ways. Is it possible to feminist one way in higher education and then feminist another way in public? I love giving you these broad questions that I have no idea how to answer. But I mean, you know, I feel like. You know, that question is very specific to black women because I feel like we have to be multiple things in multiple spaces. I Mm. feel like whiteness does not have to split itself into a thousand pieces and become like different things so that people are comfortable. It's only us, (laughs) when we talk blackness, that we have to split ourselves Mm. and be multiple things to everybody and carry everybody. So I don't know what it is to feminist in higher education and what it is to feminists at home and, 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 and so on and so on. But what I do know is that it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot from me because there's only one colleague. Mm-hmm. And I can't do this double consciousness thing mm-hmm. or triple mm-hmm. or whatever. Multiple consciousness. Multiple, yeah. When there's only like one body, you understand? That's so why it's almost like you take on this kind of, I'm very afraid to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, but this kind of schizophrenic mm-hmm. existence where you don't, I think in the end, you just don't know who you are. I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking from my own experiences as someone who has taught a course on black feminism and 
me still not quite understanding what that means for me um, as a woman who is located in South Africa right now, who comes from Ulu Ndi, Wazulu Natal, and having to make sense of the language in itself, the language fails me. Mm. So when I talk about patriarchy within the home, I don't know how to tell my uncle to stop being patriarchal mm. without being um, inaccessible. Mm. You understand? So I don't want it to be a thing where it's all about like semantics and I'm saying guti feminism can't be practiced because you know a lot of the time when we speak about feminism we speak about it in English. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm mm. saying that I need another language mm. to make the stuff accessible to people that I love. Mm. And that's all it is. I think again it goes back to intention. So why are you a feminist? You know? And I don't I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that people should explain themselves mm. but for me i need to understand why it is that i take on particular categories and at the moment i'm really struggling even to explain to my mother mm. who i believe Ruti is a feminist because when i look at so i like to talk about feminist consciousness instead of talking about feminism because to be to have feminist consciousness is to practice everything mm. you wake up you do this you do that you know what yeah it's active it's active it's not a it's not an identity that's sitting uh, exclusive books or mm. you know what I mean you don't even have to say I'm a feminist for you to do feminist things so that's my problem when we talk about feminism it's packaged in a very particular way and 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 again I'm gonna take this and say maybe you need to be feminist presenting as well like mm. take on the tools mm. take on the tools of feminism yeah you know that kind of thing that kind of thing so I don't know if every woman can easily, you know, fit into or tick those boxes, let's say. I, and I don't know if people don't tick those boxes, they are not feminist enough. Mm. So, I mean, right now, my, my, my research is on, you know, umdwana, umdwana ma koko ga mm. you know? And, and I mean, she was born in 1900. Um, she passed away in 1984. And as I'm reading her work, you know, it's very feminist, but she never came out and said, I'm a feminist because she didn't even speak English. So manje, me doing this PhD in 2017 and now imposing, you know, oh no, she was a feminist. What does that mean? Mm. What does that mean for a narrative? I do acknowledge Uguti, she had feminist consciousness and she might have called it something different. I just think Uguti, sometimes we pigeonhole. Mm. But also these terms are very useful because also I can't be in a patriarchal space and be like, oh, I'm not feminist. I'm not going to do that mm. either. So I must claim feminism and maybe, you know, shape it in such a way that it makes sense for me. So to be a black feminist is very important mm. for me. And to claim that and to challenge patriarchy as it happens. But at the same time, noting that there are limitations in how I speak about black feminism. Mm. It's not enough. So we need to expand the vocabulary so that it considers the everyday experiences of African women mm. like me. Mm. Mm. I don't know. I really like what you're saying about feminist presenting and versus feminist consciousness because I think so everyone kind of has a story of how they come into because there's also this idea that you come into so you were doing this thing and then the door of feminism opened for you and you discovered there was feminism as though all along so glad you said door ideas. because the gatekeepers at that door too so there's this door and and a lot of it kind of comes from this language that you have to take on but also certain ways of being right so people would often are surprised that if you are married and you didn't take your husband's name, that that's a feminist thing. But I'm like, but my mother didn't do it, and I don't know if she was a... But why are you associating with this particular kind of person? 
Yeah, and it's such a useful language for me, actually, feminist consciousness versus feminist presenting, because then you you must be doing the dreads, and then you must be wearing the African prints. That's, that's, that's such a useful way for me to think about it. Cause, and then there was a lot of pressure for me to then claim, but I'm like, Ish, but I haven't been on a match. I don't have that t-shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like. I don't have that, you know, angry woman t-shirt, because there's a uniform of what this thing must look mm. like. Then I was like, eh, awkward then. So we're constantly shifting, and it's and I think maybe the shifting, and not to theorize that in any particular way, because I think it might take away, but the, the complexity that also comes with being feminist, presenting feminist, feminist consciousness all day, every day, and kind of doing the schizophrenic move that one minute all those things can happen within an hour of your life. <laughs> and they happen not from a particular age, they happen from the minute you are old enough to stand by the sink, for example, or walk outside or be able to speak. Like Those are my early memories of all these things starting to happen. And at that point, gave, there were no words to say, but I'm uncomfortable and, and all those things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm latching on. You must copyright that. <laughs> Get it on a t-shirt, girl. Get, Get it on a t-shirt. Get on it. Hashtag that. And, 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 and picking up kind of like this idea of presenting, which I think is also going to be a theme, I guess, in our second, se- in our second season of this year, is thinking not only of we have a particular audience in mind, when we're saying we are public intellectuals, we are writing, we are podcasting for the public. We have a particular idea of who the public is. But also, secondly, there are very specific gatekeepers in various medias and publics that we can have access to. And it's a strange thing to kind of think about for me to say there is this big gate between the kind of rarefied space of the university and then there's a gate that then takes you to the public. So what happens here is a very different kind of thinking and work, and then what happens there outside of those gates is a very different kind of thinking and work. Mm. And then who stands at those gates to monitor access? And, and I think also being honest about like our location right now, we are very much being groomed on certain instances, even in positions of gatekeeping, of saying, well, you use the wrong discourse here, or you use the wrong phrasing here. Okay, you, what, what did you say earlier? People are cancelled. Yeah. People yeah. are being cancelled from being woke. People are being excluded. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a, a consciousness that there are, there are certain people that you're going to have to answer to who could open up the door or close the door in your face if you don't mm. feminist correctly. Mm. And it's not to say, obviously, that there are other industries or spaces that gatekeeping doesn't occur as human beings. We categorize and we differentiate between what is in and out. But there is something that feels particularly political and needs to be paid attention to when we talk about gatekeeping in feminist spaces, but then also in how we accept things as ideas or not ideas. So I've been thinking a lot about this idea of like gatekeeping categories, because I think for me, and maybe it's a lot with, to do with what I'm reading and talking, like, been talking about with people at the moment of white supremacy. So we have this idea that before white supremacy came along, African people did certain things, didn't do certain things. Um, And I'm reading this book, Colonial Desire. And he makes an argument that even the very word culture, so we talk, it's my culture, it's my this, and is that 
surely something is quite uh, problematic about even this idea of cultures. I'm, I'm trying to get to this idea of gatekeeping mm. because culture is a way of gatekeeping. You are mm. in this culture, you are outside of that culture mm. in various ways. And it is a subculture as you group and so on. So I wondered, then I thought for myself, so okay, let me go back again, because I'm doing constantly this thing of, okay, I see an idea, it's presented historically, but let me backtrack. Ekaya, what did we do with difference? And it's been quite interesting to see, and, and purely it's just me navel-gazing just the four walls of Ekaya, but there was a very interesting thing of how we talked about difference at different moments. Um, so my grandmother, Wushat, is to and she was Khoisan presenting, I guess. As people would say. But there wasn't a crisis about that. And then she married a Tembu man. My grandfather was who are often seen as Khosa proper. No, no crisis there. And when I look historically, there are moments, I guess, when people talk about, I mean, the, the, the very Khosa language itself borrows a lot from the Khoisan. And there was no crisis there. Same thing with my maternal side. So that was my paternal side. My maternal side of my grandfather, whom I didn't know, my mother's father, was apparently Kalat, or had taken on that identity, either had, um, what did they call it when you... When you change your name? Yeah, you get on and my grandmother was possible. But there was no crisis there, but there was just an understanding, well, Ubelezanga Chade, and that was just the way we organized ourselves. But her half-brother looked particularly colored, and my mom was colored. But there was also a sense of pride in that as mm. well, in this whole mix-up. All colorism, how you love to revisit us. <laughs> so I'm trying to think about when, when did difference become a crisis, and how did we account for difference becoming a crisis? And it goes back again to how do we disagree? So if I'm at the gate, and I'm showing you all my credentials, to say I deserve to be on that other side of the gate. What is the, 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 the criteria that's going to be used to decide how do I get mm -hmm. in or how do I get out? And it seems it's partly quite arbitrary. And obviously we've spoken about like how power operates and all these things. But I want, I'm, I'm interested, I don't have an answer for it, but I'm trying to think about when did difference become a crisis? Yeah. And how much of it does does um, kind of boil down to white supremacy and then creating difference as a crisis? Because their whole operation, their whole project was about creating difference. And I mean, at the same time, reading Katie Makanya's biography about um, her, the, the, the nervousness that her grandmother had when she discovered that she was going to marry a Zulu man. I think they were Kosa or they'd grown up in the, in the Cape. How much of it was particular? So families relating to language groups or cultures relating, when did people decide they are Kosa and they are Zulu, for example? When did that happen? Or when did we decide that Zulus are better, Kosas uh, are not better? All those things, they, what was the, the interaction there? So it, it, maybe it's power, but I think power sometimes isn't a useful way of thinking of it. Maybe it's, it's white supremacy, but I don't know because we can't just say that the Africans didn't have a way of categorizing each other. But I'm trying to go back to say, in another world, in another time, how did we relate? Did we always relate as a new better? I'm not. I think I think it's it's. I hear the the impulse to kind of go back historically and see the genealogy, but also I think it's important to bring it to this time where we live in multiple worlds that are always interacting, um, and and that which are not arbitrary because I think history has a lot to do with how we take certain things in the way which we live right now for granted. So how much of what we see sometimes is normalized? So how did we normalize difference in a sense? How did we normalize gatekeeping and how useful has it been 
and now we're seeing it even in spaces that are supposed to open up. So we feminist gatekeeping, woke gatekeeping. I thought wokeness was a party for everybody, but it turns out it's not. I thought feminism was a party for everyone, but it's sometimes not. So how is it that that thing keeps reproducing itself? What's the thing that keeps this keeps the, going? the oppressive machine churning? I mean, I'd love to solve these problems for you guys, but. <laughs> <laughs> It's the end of our show. <laughs> it's the end of our show. Atta, you're raising an important question, and I think it's in our country right now, where and globally, where we are currently treating difference as a crisis and not something that is part of the world. Because discriminating and discriminating is not the right word. I mean, differentiating, mm-hmm. right? Being able to say one of these things is not like the other. Right? That in and of itself doesn't have to be an oppressive tool. Exactly. But if one of these things is not like the other and ergo it needs to have a shitty school, it shouldn't go to school, it should walk, it must be killed, it, must be killed, it is disposable, suddenly difference is no longer innocuous. It's, you know, it's quite a dangerous, uh, mm-hmm. dangerous thing. And I, I, again, this season's going to be lit. I want to get more people on board to come and talk to us about some of these ideas and concepts because again we keep saying at the academic citizen that uh, we're interested in what decoloniality looks like and how we practice it and at, at the heart of, the, of that process is asking us ourselves these questions and muddling our way through to some semblance of an answer so thanks for joining me thank you thank you for having us My name is Abdirisak Mohammed. I'm doing honors in political studies. Uh, public intellectualism, if perhaps we are talking about academics, because intellect, academics, I don't think, uh, don't have a monopoly of intellectualism, but their role perhaps is quite wide. They should be able to criticize the social I mean social or the political ills in the society they should be also able to or perhaps their role should be to draft uh, policies The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem.